While you're finding your seat, how about if you uh, take out your Bible, and if you brought one with you, go to the book of Acts. If you didn't bring one with you, you're going to find them in the rack around you, but you'll also be able to follow along on the screen. While you're making their way, your way there, just a, a detail for you. If you're new to New Hope, there's an event out at my home tonight. Uh, it's called Pizza with the Pastor and a chance for you to meet the leadership of the church. And if you'd like to get connected, maybe you'd like to meet some other individuals, a great opportunity for you to do that. There's details inside your bulletin about that, okay? Um, one other thing, I'd just love to celebrate with you this morning. Did you guys happen to see the news yesterday that Pastor Abedini was freed from Iran? Cool, yeah. How amazing. Yeah, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, he's a 35-year-old pastor. His wife and three daughters down in Florida have been living for three years without him because he was arrested and put in an Iranian prison. Um, they said it was for actions against the government, but we know it was really because of Jesus, right? Uh, he was in chains for Jesus and uh, kept his testimony strong. I can't wait to read the interviews that are going to come out of that experience. He, he was just in the worst prison possible in Iran and freed yesterday along with a Marine and along with our former Marine and uh, a journalist. And right now, as we're here, they're on a jet airplane flying back to the United States. So praise the Lord. That's pretty cool. Um, I'd celebrate that with you because a lot of people in the church have been praying about that if you're not familiar with that. Just been bringing it up before God for three years now. Well, I want to take you into the text, but before we do that in Acts 23, I want to pray with you. So would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, so many hearts here, so many uh, souls just longing for a chance to encounter you in, in a fresh way. We know that we have this sense of your presence because of the worship that we just um, completed, We're able to praise you, and, and, and just palpable presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. But God, I ask in recognition of that, that, that with your Spirit here, that you would be teaching and leading and guiding us in a, in a way that goes far beyond what a man can do. You've said that your word is alive and it's active and that it's sharp, so I, I ask that you would use your word to do surgery and to work on hearts that really need to encounter you this morning. Father, for, especially for those right now that feel a need to have you close to them. Whatever circumstance is going on, Father, I, I don't know what it is, but I feel it in my heart. There's individuals that just need to really sense your presence. So God, I ask that you would be especially close to them, that you would open up our eyes as we work through this passage. Help us to understand how you see us. God, we ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh, I want to put a truth on the screen for you to process, and it's something that needs to hang with you throughout the passage this morning that we're going to look at, and here's the truth. If the value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay, you are priceless because Jesus gave his life for you. Do you believe it? When I was like uh, 17 years old, 18 years old, I, I had purchased a 1966 Ford Fairlane. And uh, it was an old car, and I knew it was old, but it had really, really low miles on it. I thought I was really fortunate to find it. And I um, painted it fire engine red. It looked really cool. And great, great race tires on it. And I, I was uh, needing to sell it because I was going to college, right? And so I said to my dad, and, and my dad owned a car dealership for a long time, and I said, Dad, what do you think I can get out of this thing? Because I was really hoping to make some money on it, right? And he said, well, the price of it is only determined by what somebody's willing to pay for it. I said, what? 
And he said the price is only determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. Well, it turns out somebody was only willing to pay 800 bucks for it, so didn't do all that. Yeah, right, I know. I was like, oh, really? Okay, so here's, here's the, the thought that's hung with me all those years, and it, it's not unique to me. It's, it's in just an ancient truth. If the value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay, you're priceless because God the Son gave his life for you. Now, take that knowledge, take that truth, and let it be a motivator for your life. Because for me, the reality, my own experience, the knowledge of that truth is an incredible motivator. It drives every single decision that I make. You're going to see how that plays out in Paul's story this morning. We're only going to do 11 verses. We only get to go through verses 1 through 11, but you'll see why we take it at the pace that we do. So let's, let's go into the story. What we find is uh, where we left off last week, Paul's appearing before the Supreme Court of the land. He's on trial for his life. And so he's being brought before what's called the Sanhedrin. And it's the fifth time... The gospel of Jesus Christ has been presented before the ruling body, the Supreme Court. The very first time was with Jesus in Mark chapter 14. Jesus appears before the Supreme Court, and they're trying to assess what do they do with the Jesus situation. Well, you work through the book of Acts, and you find several other times, and you come to the fifth and final time the Jesus issue comes before the Supreme Court. So five times the gospel is presented, and five times the gospel is rejected. And these individuals who sit on the Supreme Court, unfortunately, condemn themselves because of their rejection. That might sound like a really harsh way to start out, but we don't mind dealing with hard things here at New Hope. Here's the truth of Scripture, John 3.18. Look with me on the screen. He who believes in Him, meaning in Jesus, he who believes in Him is not judged. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? Then you're not judged. You're not judged. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the Supreme Court. They're, they're rejecting for the fifth and final time who Jesus is. So with that happy thought, let's understand the Supreme Court, right? It, it, it's just very sad, actually, that they're rejecting this. The Supreme Court, known as the Sanhedrin in the first century, who rules over the land of Israel, they're the final authority. There is none higher. You can't appeal your case to anyone else. If they make a decision, the decision is final. In all civil matters, the only right Rome reserved for itself was the authority to kill someone. In other words, capital punishment. But all civil matters were brought before the Sanhedrin. It's made up of three groups. You got the high priest, or what the Bible calls the chief priest, that's one individual. And then you've got the elders, and the elders were made up of aristocracy or nobility, individuals with lots and lots of money. And then the third group that it's made up of are the scribes, and those are the lawyers, the legal experts. They really understand the law. Within that three groups, there's two factions. There's the Sadducees, and there's the Pharisees. That's who you read about when you work through the New Testament. So two political groups, as we would think of them. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they dominate the chambers of the Supreme Court. Now, Claudius Lysias, who we met last week, the commander of the Roman cohort, logically would be thinking, well, I'm going to let Paul go on trial before his own people. They'll be able to best decide. So he calls a special assembly of the court and tells them to come together. There's 70 individuals who make up the court. Let me just put an image on the screen so you get a picture in your mind what's going on. What you're seeing is a picture of the temple courtyard and the tallest building in the very center. It's the temple proper itself. 
but outside the temple proper itself is a, a walled structure. The walled structure you see surrounding it is where the Sanhedrin met. There was chambers, a very large courtroom, and that's where the Supreme Court officiated. Well, that's where Paul's headed, to go inside the chambers. He brings Paul, the, the commander brings Paul, sets him down, but then he steps aside and watches what's going to unfold because he does not trust the Jewish leaders. He knows they hate Paul to death, meaning they're willing to kill him. So the commander of the Roman cohort, Claudius Lysias, stays in the courtroom to watch the proceedings. And this is where we pick up verse 1. This is how it unfolds. Verse 1 says this, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And thinking, what? What is up with that? Why are they punching him in the face because of what he just said? There's been no verdict. There's been no deliberations, yet the high priest has already taken action against Paul. Well, let's just reel it back a couple notches. Understand that Paul walks into this setting absolutely not intimidated whatsoever. Do you notice that it says he's looking at them intently, right? That's the word antonizo. It means to fix your eyes on. It means Paul's going eye to eye with the people in the council, silently, not speaking a word. He's willing them to look them in the eye. He doesn't have to look away because he knows he's innocent. He's got the confidence that God is with him. So he uses this phrase, brethren. Now, that's unusual because when you go into a court setting, typically the term of high respect is given to those who are in the chamber. And if you're in Israel in the first century and you go before the Sanhedrin, you would begin by saying, rulers and elders of the people, listen to me. It'd be like going into a courtroom today and saying, your honor, may I have the floor? But Paul doesn't start out that way. He starts out with brethren. Why? Well, Paul's got really close ties with the Sanhedrin. He used to be one of them, right? These are the guys he went to college with. He studied at the school of Gamaliel. The individuals sitting on the bench are fellow friends of his. Well, at least they used to be. He worked with them to exterminate the church. So he dresses them as equals. Go back into verse 1 again. He says, I've lived with a perfect conscience right up to this day before God. So here's the implication. In every possible respect, he's saying, I've been faithful to God. I've always been motivated by this desire I have to please God. It means this, Paul felt no guilt for anything he'd done in the past. How is that possible when you begin thinking, wait, this is the guy who put people in chains before he came to Christ. This is the guy who beat individuals who said they were Christians. This is the guy who actually promoted the murder of Christians. How can he say, I've got a perfect conscience? I really want to understand what he's saying there. Well, let's take the word conscience the way Paul's using it and make sure we understand it because it really applies to us in 2016. It's a favorite word of Paul's. He uses it 21 times in the New Testament, 21 times in his letters. Our conscience, the conscience that we have within us that's active right now is your inner judge. And your conscience approves when you do things right and it disproves when we do things wrong. Our conscience is like a check valve. I can back that up with Scripture. Look with me on the screen at Romans 2.15. Romans 2.15 says your conscience does things. It alternately either accuses or defends you. It, it, it's active. It does things within you. But catch this, because this is where a lot of people are messed up in 2016. 
Your conscience, my conscience, our conscience does not set the standard. Our conscience only applies the standard. Our conscience doesn't set the standard. It only applies it. And and this is important because many people think today, well, I've just got to follow my conscience. Just let my conscience be my guide. Really? Because you want to check yourself on that, right? Is your conscience trustworthy? Can you trust your conscience? So let's use the conscience analogy this way. Let's imagine our conscience is a sheet of glass, like a window, all right? And if our conscience is a window, that conscience determines how much light gets in based on how you and I live out our life. So if God's word, if God's law is the light, God's law, Scripture says, is light. If God's law is the light, the cleaner the window is, the cleaner the piece of glass, the more the light is going to shine in, right? But as a window gets dirty, in the dirtiness of it, the light gets dimmer. It gets reduced to the degree that finally, if, if there's enough darkness, the light can be completely blocked. It can be dark, and, and things are hard to see clearly. So a pure conscience lets God's light in. And Paul's talking about a pure conscience here. If we're properly letting God's light in, then we're convicted if we do wrong and we're encouraged if we do right. But here's the problem. A defiled conscience doesn't let enough light in. One that's been sinned against so much, so much sin activity, constantly living egregiously against God, that conscience no longer becomes dependable. So if a person continues to sin, living in resistance to God and God's word and God's law, your conscience can actually become seared, what, what Scripture says like getting scar tissue built over your conscience, right? To the degree, Hebrews says, your conscience can actually become evil. So we need to understand this word, how it's being used here, because Paul's using a very strong statement when he says, I have a pure conscience before God. This should be encouraging for you, right? As we're comparing ourselves with our conscience today to Paul, especially if you're living with regrets right now. If you're living with regrets about your life prior to Jesus and the things that you might have done in your past, think about Paul. He persecuted the church, right? He put people in chains, even caused innocent people to die. How can he say, I've got a pure conscience? He doesn't just say a good conscience. I've got a pure conscience. Here's how. He says, I lived up to the light that I had. I lived up to the light that was available to me. I've got a pure conscience before God. That's what a good conscience requires, that you do live up to the light that you do have available to you. So check this. After Paul becomes a Christian, the light of God is shining through his window. What was previously very dark is now illuminated by God's light coming through. So Paul gets to the point in 1 Timothy, we actually recognizes those actions that I did earlier, they made me the chief of sinners. So you've got a guy who's saying, I've got a pure conscience, yet the activities that I carried out before, I was the chief of sinners. So we check this reality on how Paul uses this word conscience, and we put ourselves in that courtroom setting, and he's just made this claim. I have a pure conscience. I'm only doing the things that God has told me to do, and he's made this claim before this ruling body of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, and that puts the Sanhedrin on the defensive. Because if Paul is innocent before God, that means the Sanhedrin is guilty before God. 
And if they're opposing Paul, that means they're opposing God's purposes, what God is doing. So they're outraged, right, that he's made this really bold claim. I got this perfect conscience. Smack him. Punch him in the face. Well, who's Ananias that's doing this? Ananias, the high priest, is hated by the people of Israel. This is a guy who reaches into the, the, the coffers of the temple, takes out whatever money he wants for himself. The, the Jews learn that he's not resistant to using violence against people to get what he wants done. And so this is a person they really, really despise. That's who Paul is speaking about here. This guy whom the general public really, really resents. So Paul, verse 3, seems like he resents him too. Verse 3 says this, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? See, now Paul's not been formally charged, right? Much less convicted. He can't legally be beaten. So enraged, Paul snaps back, you whitewashed wall. Now, if you don't know this, this is first century smack, okay? (laughs) He's slamming him, all right? So when you look at first century smackdown like that, you want to understand that phrase, what's he saying there? doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus used a similar term as an image of hypocrisy in the first century. In the first century, they didn't have hunter's orange, right? No blaze orange, couldn't put up real bright orange, no trespassing signs. So when someone died and they went into a tomb, they would get out the brightest paint they had, which was white paint, and they would whitewash the wall of a tomb, meaning no trespassing, don't go in here, there's death behind this door, because the dead bodies inside the tomb would defile a Jew. And so Paul's using that imagery, that thought. You whitewashed wall, you look good on the outside, but there's death and decay on the inside. That's what's going on in you. Watch how the bystanders respond. Verse 4, but the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Now the word revile is something that Peter uses to describe what happened to Jesus. When Jesus was arrested and being beaten, it says he was reviled, but he didn't revile in return, 1 Peter 2.23. Jesus didn't return revile for revile. As a matter of fact, God's word forbids Christians to do it. Look with me on the screen at the word revile that's in the Greek language. It's also in your notes this morning, but it's not as complete definition as what you'll see on the screen. It it means actually to condemn, condemn someone, to go after them with an attack, like a railing reproach. That's why Scripture says you're forbidden to do that as a believer in Jesus Christ because God alone gets to condemn Look with me at 1 Peter 3.9. You'll see this. It says this, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, meaning revile for revile, but giving a blessing instead. So I'm hearing Paul do this, but Jesus says don't do this. How do I balance this? How do I balance this great servant of God, Paul, using really, really strong language against Jesus' example of not reviling? Well, here's a very simple answer. Paul's not Jesus, church, Right? He's a sinner just like you and I. No doubt a really godly man. No doubt a great guy, but still a sinner. See, what you're looking at there is a moment when the flesh wins. And and the flesh won big time. Paul acknowledges in verse 5, whoa, I just violated God's law. Go with me to verse 5. And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
See, Paul's conscience has just kicked in. The light of God is shining through his heart, and his measuring rod is not his own standard. It's God's word. And God's word says you shall not revile your leader. So he's got this overriding sense of conviction, right? He's immediately acknowledging his wrong. And his only excuse is ignorance. His only excuse is, I didn't know. So catch, catch this. Even though the man sitting in office is a disgrace to his office, he occupies a God-ordained position because God says he raises up leaders and he puts leaders down. So a guy in office who is a disgrace to his office is still in a God-ordained position, and he's not to be reviled. But Paul's been provoked, man. He's been punched in the face. But instead of going further with the reviling, what does he do? He quickly admits, you're right, I just violated God's law. I stepped into a boundary I should not have done. What you're seeing, church, is the reaction of a mature Christian. A mature Christian who sees sin in his life for what it is, and he immediately owns it. How does he do that? Because the light of God is shining through his window that was previously dark, and his convictions kick in because his conscience is working right. He's got this pure conscience. He recognizes what he just did in relation to how holy God is, not in relation to how bad the high priest is. Do you hear that? Our actions have to be checked in relation to how holy God is, not in relation to how evil the actions are around us, how we carry out what we do. You deal with sin in your life in that way, you're gonna save yourself a whole lot of grief, a whole lot of rebuke from God. So go with me to verse six, because Paul recognizes he did the wrong thing, so he begins to perceive what's going on in the room. Verse six says, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now Paul knows he's not gonna receive a fair trial, right? He's before the Supreme Court. They're already punching him. They obviously want him dead. And he yells out, I'm a Pharisee, meaning I'm of this political party. And he knows there's two groups in the room, two factions who think theologically differently, socially they think differently, politically they think differently. In Washington, D.C., we have a Congress made up of Republicans and Democrats and, and perhaps some independents, right? All American citizens but serving under the same Congress. So two political parties completely diametrically opposed in value sometimes and in their sociological belief structure. That's what Paul's facing right here. And indirectly, because he falls into the camp of the Pharisees, he says, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Why would he say that? Well, the hope and the resurrection and eternal life is not why they say he's there, but it's why he's really there, right? It's not because there was a riot in the temple square, even though they say that's why he's on trial. He's absolutely right. The real issue is the resurrection. It's the issue behind all of his trials. The resurrection separates Paul from everyone else in the room. The resurrection separates you from everyone else in society who does not believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the central truth of Scripture, church. Amen? All right? Without that, without the resurrection, you have zero hope. 
Zero. Paul said, if Jesus wasn't raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, we're losers. If Jesus wasn't raised, but Jesus was raised, and that's why he's on trial for that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He recognizes it's the central issue, the claim that Jesus is alive. Now, this might be surprise you if you don't know anything about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but the Pharisees actually believed in the resurrection of the dead. They actually believe in eternal life. They just didn't think Jesus was the guy. So a commonly held view by the Pharisees is that there is eternal life, that there is a resurrection. But the last thing the Pharisees would ever want to do is find themselves defending Jesus. They've already officially rejected him. But the understanding and the confidence that they have in a future resurrection and eternal life, it's too big to ignore. They just can't let this argument go away. So watch verse 7. As he said this, meaning Paul, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So Paul's fanning into flame this political dispute between these two, right? He recognizes where they are at and what they think. And Luke, as a follow-up to it, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, gives us a little brief commentary, one sentence, verse 8. He wants people who are readers to understand why is there so much tension. Verse 8 says this, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Pharisees believe in resurrection and eternal life, right? The Sadducees do not believe in any resurrection and any eternal life. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> I know it's really old, but it's a good one. It's an easy one. Okay, the, the Sadducees absolutely dismiss it. They reject any concept of an afterlife. Here's why. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In other words, the Pentateuch, or what's called the Torah. And they can't find evidence of the afterlife in the first five books. They honor the other books, but they don't regard them as high as they do the Pentateuch. And they say, it's, it's not there, we can't see it, so we reject it. So watch the dispute, verse 9. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So the appeal throws the meeting into huge confusion, right? The Pharisees rise to defend another fellow Pharisee, and the, the clash is so intense between these two parties what do the Pharisees find themselves doing now? They find themselves defending Paul. In other words, they have to defend what Paul represents. Go with me to verse 10. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Lysias has been watching this entire thing unfold in frustration because he's just brought Paul before the highest court in the land, hoping to find out why do they hate this guy so much. And once again, Rome has to come to the rescue. To preserve his life, Lysias confines Paul to the barracks. He's back in chains again. He's going to be held in Fort Antonio, the fortress just outside the walls of the temple. And we come into this last verse for this morning, verse 11, with Paul in chains. Everything has been a setup to this point to understand what is going on for Paul. Where is he at in this moment? Well, in this moment, he's alone in his cell. 
Physically, he's been beaten. He's battered. And he's discouraged with a capital D because his future is not certain to him. He doesn't know. All he knows prophetically is that he was going to go into chains in Jerusalem. He doesn't know that this might not be the end of the line. And perhaps he's going to die now. In this moment, he recognizes he's been rejected for the final time by his nation. Paul is a guy who's more than willing to lay down his life for his country if they would only grasp what Jesus has offered them. He would gladly give his life in exchange for theirs if he could help them to see who the Messiah is. Now, we know that Jesus prepared Paul for this moment because we've read for weeks now. Paul's been warned. Paul's been told. People have shown up and tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem. Paul is prepared for this moment, but still, even when you know these things, you've got to understand these trials have been intense. Just think about the last 24 hours for him. The mob has seized him. They have been beating him. He's had to defend Jesus from the steps, rested, put in chains, and then there's the attempted scourging. They stretched him out with leather, as we saw last week. And now the violence of the Sanhedrin. Paul is discouraged, so it's very natural in these moments. You and I, we can relate to him. In those kind of moments, you're thinking, what's this all leading to? Where am I headed? What's going to happen? In these moments, this is where Jesus emerges. Go with me to verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You'll find it really interesting. You might want to write this down in your notes or maybe in your Bible, but the phrase, Thoreo, take courage, it's only ever spoken of by Jesus. He's the only one that has the authority to do it. He's the only one that has the capacity to do it. And in a moment when Paul needs to hear it most, Jesus shows up and says, Paul, take courage. When I read this verse, and I'm working through it again this last week, my mind immediately goes to Hebrews 13.5. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Have you memorized that verse? You should, if you have not memorized it. This is a verse that Lori and I used to teach to the children at Youth Haven when we were served on staff there many, many moons ago. All those children coming in from underprivileged homes who were never exposed to the Bible, there was one verse that we could teach them that we knew they could remember because it was so simple. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We teach them to say it on their fingertips. We just say, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And we told them to put their own name there on the little finger. Jesus said, I will never leave Mark nor forsake Mark. Lock it in like a key. Those kids could remember it. They told us that same verse as teenagers when they would come back. My mind immediately goes there because Paul is in this moment where he can't see anything but discouragement. The truth is Jesus is already in the room. Paul just can't see him. Jesus is in the room, church. He's here right now. The presence of God is here. You just can't see him. So Jesus emerges when Paul needs to be encouraged and Paul can see him now. And what's the first thing King Jesus does? He goes right for the heart and he calms a distressed heart because Paul is discouraged. So what does Jesus say? Verse 11, take courage, Paul. 
Take hold of who I am. Take what I bring to you. Do you know that your God comforts the depressed? You got somebody in your life who deals with depression? Or they're downhearted right now because of circumstances? You might want to write down these next two verses in your notes or maybe in your Bible, but look with me up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 7, 6. This is what it says about our God. God comforts the depressed to the degree that our God is actually even called, according to 2 Corinthians 1, 3, the God of all comfort. Did you know that about your God? He comforts the depressed. He's the God of all comfort. Let's take that one step further. God empowers you to be comforting to others like he comforts us. Let me take this up on the screen with you, 2 Corinthians 1. It says this in verse 4. God comforts us in all our affliction, and I love it when the Bible gives us a reason for what we're going through, right? You going through a hard time right now? You got some degree of affliction in your life? God says God comforts us in all our affliction. Here's the reason why. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Take that one step further because Paul understands exactly what it's like to go through really hard times. He says this, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, in other words, I got a lot of weight on me for being a person who names the name of Christ. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. How cool is that? That Paul can say, I know how to measure the comfort level of God. When things are going really, really bad, when they're abundant in my life, that's when I see God be incredibly real to me. So hear it this way. The greater the measure of the struggle you might be in right now, the greater the measure of the anxiety you might be feeling right now, the greater the presence of the God whom you serve in the midst of that. Paul's in a jail cell. Jesus shows up, and the first thing he says to him is, Paul, take courage. I'm the God of all comfort. Now, don't just stop there. Let's go to the last phrase of verse 11, because I see Jesus celebrating Paul. This is like a hand clap for Paul. Well done. He says to Paul, you have solemnly witnessed to my cause. What I sent you to do, you did it, Paul. Now, I don't often say what's not said in the Bible, but in this case, I'm going to do this because it, it, it may be really subtle to you, but you need to see it. Do you notice what is not said? Jesus doesn't show up in the midst of this and say, Paul, you're such a screw-up. I see absolutely no condemnation here. Jesus doesn't show up in the very day that Paul fell short and recognized that he sinned and say, Paul, what is it with you not holding your tongue, man? You were in the court before the Supreme Court and you couldn't even hold your own tongue? Why do you not see that? Because there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, right? Right? There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ because you belong to him. God's not going to condemn when you mess up. God's already forgiven you. He just wants you to confess it to him. Paul owned his sin. So you don't see God condemning him. Jesus didn't say, Paul, you're such a screw-up. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what your Bible says. Instead of that, what Jesus does is he speaks into Paul's greatest need. He gives him hope. And I don't just mean hoping and hope. It's biblical hope, a promise. Paul, there's more for you to do. 
I know things have been hard, Paul. I know they've been intense, but that very commitment, that short phrase from God sustains Paul. Here's a preview of coming attractions. I know we only did 11 verses this morning, but when you come back next week, we're going to do way more than 11 verses, okay? This is why Paul needed to hear this in this moment. Paul's about to go on trial before King Agrippa, before Festus, and before Felix, and he's going to be put in a jail cell, and then he's going to be put on a ship, and you're going to see the ship destroyed in the Mediterranean Sea, and Paul's going to find himself floating on debris from the ship. But in all of that, he keeps courage because God, the God of all comfort, has just brought him courage. Take courage, Paul. I know your future. I know your destiny. I know what's coming. So even when it looks rough, Paul, still with you. I'm right there. You're fulfilling what I asked you to do, and I'm fulfilling my plan in you. So catch this big picture. This is what Jesus is saying out of these 11 verses. There's purpose in the things that are happening to you. For Paul, just as you did it in Jerusalem, you're going to get to do it in Rome also. Let's take this entire thought and bring it all the way back around 360 degrees to the very first promise I put on the screen for you. If the value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay and Jesus gave his life for you, you are priceless, church. How does that fit into this story? The knowledge of that truth is a motivator to take you through the hardest of times. It drives your decisions. This is a point like none other when we see Paul at the very bottom and completely discouraged to the degree that Jesus has to show up and encourage him when Paul could have said, I'm out. I'm going to cash in my chips. I, I, I just can't go there. I've been beat. They want to rip me limb from limb. I'm serving time in jail. If at any time you'd want to see Paul check out, it'd be there. But the knowledge that Jesus gave his life for him and that he's priceless. Church, that, that just drives every decision. It drives everything you do 24-7 throughout the week ahead of you. There is a purpose to everything that God lets you go through. It doesn't escape his attention. I hope you find this as great encouragement this morning. The service Saturday night service, we stayed for like 40 minutes after the service doing Q&A last night on this subject. So I expect you're going to be chewing on this for a while. Just thinking through, what is God saying to me about this issue? Let me pray for you that way, that you'll continue to let this ruminate in your mind. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray, first of all, that you would not let these thoughts quickly escape our mind. I, I don't know what's going on in everyone's mind right now, but you do. You know us intimately. You see the very thoughts that are on our mind right now. I pray, Father, for whatever way you spoke to each one of us today, you would not let that quickly escape. Don't let it go away, Father, when we sit in the car and drive away or when we sit down to eat a meal. Cause us to process this in such a way that it shapes us. We recognize we are valuable to you. We just don't understand how valuable, Father. I ask that you would remind us of that, especially those who, who struggle with a sense of self-worth. 
Help us to see ourselves as priceless in your eyes, that you gave your son for us. God, I desire that for this church because it will embolden us. It will make us stronger for the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray for this. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.